Would you open your Bibles, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. We're not going to take the time ahead of our meditation together to read the entire text, but we'll be looking at verses 1 to 20 today. Let's go to him in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for this time in your word, O Lord. This morning we were thinking about Joshua and how you called him to, to faith and courage. And if he was going to be prosperous in everything he did, if he was going to have success, he needed to meditate upon your word day and night, and your law needed to be in his mouth always and not to depart from it. I pray, Father, that we would have a sweet meditation in your word this morning. May this meditation be carried along and accompanied by and undergirded by the power of your Holy Spirit. We need a mighty work in us, O God, and we're not capable of doing it. We pray that you would work it by your Spirit, through your Word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as we turn our attention to Luke chapter 10, uh, we find Jesus continuing on his way to Jerusalem. It's the way of the cross. In verse 51 of chapter 9, he turned his face toward Jerusalem. And and so, no matter where his feet take him for the next several months, and we'll be covering those months through chapter 19, he'll be up and down, he'll be back and forth across the provinces of Galilee and, and Samaria and um, Judah, uh, Judea as well. No matter where his feet take him, his face is set on Jerusalem. And on the way, as he goes, he is raising up disciples. He is calling them to himself. He is telling them to join him in being resolute and single-minded for the mission of God. So we find the Lord Jesus calling an additional 72 in verse 1, besides the twelve apostles and sending them out on the mission to proclaim the kingdom of God in Christ against Satan and all his powers. And so it says in the first couple verses, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What do the laborers do? There are many ways that we are gifted, spiritually gifted, that is. Some are gifted to evangelize. Some are gifted to have words of wisdom and to encourage others are gifted to administrate, to lead, some to have mercy, and others with acts of service, to have that servant's heart especially. But no matter how we are spiritually gifted, even if we have not received the gift of evangelism, we are all called to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim His kingdom to the lost. And that's what laborers do. Laborers in the harvest, which is plentiful. We all feel guilty when it comes to talking about and, and meditating upon our need to evangelize and Jesus' call to do this. We all feel guilty of falling short of fulfilling the Great Commission. 
And it's very tempting for a preacher who feels guilt, guilt himself to make people feel guilty. But I don't want to berate you. I don't want to remind you of your lost opportunities and failures and all the times that you have squandered. You, you say, you can stop now. I don't want to do that to encourage you to evangelize, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, first of all, that we are co-workers with Christ in this mission. And what a great mission it is, and what a great blessing it is to participate with Jesus, to be His helpers, to speak the good news of the kingdom to those who are lost. For those of you who are parents, You probably can remember when you had big helpers in your house. You know, it's usually around the time that your children are two years old that they realize that they can do something and they want to do something and they see mama and daddy doing various projects and they want to say, no matter what it is, I want to help, I want to help, I want to help. We have this picture of Marshall when he was, I don't know if he was quite two or not, but we had the the dishwasher door open, you know, and it, it It's not hitting the floor, of course. It's suspended above. There's that gap there. And he's standing on top of the open dishwasher door, reaching in because he he wants to help. And he's a big help. He's he's got, I think, uh, he's got that mindset to serve and to share and to give in that way. Proud of my little guy. But we know that eventually that enthusiasm to be the big helper begins to wane. And I think probably when you look back on your Christian experience and your walk with the Lord, that you can find along the way, as long as you follow Jesus, that some of your initial enthusiasm for participating in the mission of Christ and calling others to repent toward God and put faith in Jesus, some of that initial enthusiasm begins to wane. And there's heights of it and there's dips in it and so on. But I want to remind you that God has called us to help He doesn't need us, but He calls on us. This mission is why we are here. This mission is massive. It is so much bigger than the megaest megachurch. It's it's huge. It's beyond us. And so Jesus calls us, first of all, to pray to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. The harvest is ready. So who will go out as a laborer? And will you pray for laborers to go? Let me say something. You cannot pray for laborers to go into the harvest of God if you are not willing for your children and grandchildren to be those laborers. And this is something I think that in the current generation's idolatry of children, our children, we don't want to release them to where God would have them go. But you cannot pray for God to send somebody else's children. That's the kind of prayer that we say bounces off the ceiling and doesn't get through. We must pray that our children would be willing to go. This harvest that we speak of is not only in our backyard. It's a global harvest. It is worldwide. And if God would have 
my children on the other side of the world. I would miss them like crazy, and hopefully they would be where Skype is available, but if not, I would miss them like crazy, and I would be grateful, and I would be proud, and I would look forward to the day when they stand before the Lord and receive his commendation for laying themselves down. Are we willing? Will we pray that way? If we're going to pray for laborers, we must pray for our children to be among those whom God is pleased to call. And you are lucky if God calls yours to be a laborer in his harvest. Of course, he calls us all. But I mean in that that missionary far field sense. God calls us to pray. In Romans 10, Paul said, and I'm a little bit paraphrasing, how will they call on him if they do not believe? And how will they believe if they have never heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And when we incorporate Luke 10 into Romans 10, we can add, and how will they be sent if we do not pray? And pray earnestly. We must pray. In verse 3, our Lord says, Go your way to his 72. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Well, there's... You know, one thing we can't say about Jesus is he, um, you know, we can't say that he ever glosses anything over. He's very clear. He's very honest. He, is, he says, I'm sending you out on this mission. It is truly awesome. And it is loaded with danger. He sends us out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And we know what wolves do to lambs. And we know what kind of fight and resistance lambs can put up against wolves. So it's almost like, you know, hold on a second. Isn't this mission, you know, doesn't it fail from the word go if this is who we are and what we're going into? And the answer is no. Okay, so if not, should we get some uh, wolf-proof armor and be outfitted or something, maybe some pepper spray A force field. A force field would be nice if the Lord would surround us all with these impenetrable domes, you know, and so we could go out. But the Lord doesn't do that. In fact, look at verse 4. He says, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. We'll get to that last one in a moment. But he is sending them out on a mission that is loaded with danger, In the midst of wolves, we're sounding out as lambs. And then he says, okay, before you go out, give me your knapsack, give me your supplies, give me your cash, and even your sandals. Take it all off, hand it over, and then go. It's the same thing as what Jesus called for in chapter 9 when he sent out the twelve. When he sent them out, he took away every earthly supply that they had, any human resource that they could put their trust in or rely upon. Because Satan is going to be felled by the word of truth. And they're not going to be able to give any credit to any resource that they would have in their pockets. Any kind of 
human ingenuity or contraption device or scheme or whatever. They were to put it all aside and trust in Christ, the authority of His Word to bring down the powers of hell. Only Christ. He says, take a buddy. You're going to have a co-worker. You'll have a companion. They, they go out two by two. They go out with prayer and the power of the Word and nothing else. That's all. He calls them at the end of verse 4 to be single-minded in their focus. He said, don't greet anybody on the road. Meaning, don't get sidetracked. Don't let anything take you off the road of your mission. No side trails. The mission is urgent. Only a single-minded focus on proclaiming Jesus will do. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So the mission mission is urgent. Don't get sidetracked. And the mission isn't about you, so don't angle for a better deal. Whatever... Support comes your way from a household of peace that's in accord with your message. Be satisfied with that. Don't try to broker for something better. Don't think, you know, after a day in that house, oh man, that house down the street would have been so much better. They're good people too. We should have stayed there. She's a better cook. You know, that's not what it was about. The mission was not about them. Where they were welcomed, where they found children of peace who welcomed the gospel of peace. Jesus commanded them in verse 9 to heal the sick in that receptive town and proclaim to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Let's move on to verse 10 and following. He says, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Do you see at the end of verse 9 and verse 11 a crucial difference between the ends of those two texts? There's a crucial difference. Two little words missing would have been just one in the original. To you. When they said the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near to you, they were speaking of advantage to you. It's it's to your advantage, to your eternal blessedness and joy. But where they did not find any reception of faith, they dropped that to you and said, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, it has come, but it's not to your advantage. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It is to your judgment, and it is to your condemnation. So they were instructed to leave those towns, shake off, wipe off the dust from their feet as a testimony that said, we're not going to have any part in your unbelief. But know this, the kingdom of God has come near. And Jesus says in verse 12, 
I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Don't have time to repeat all the sordid, scandalous offenses and the the vileness of the city of Sodom. You may recall from the story of Lot and his wife and daughters and so on. Jesus says it will be more bearable on that day, speaking of the last day, the day of judgment, for Sodom than for the town that refuses him. Do you think that it's any different for our day? Was Jesus saying that, well, these people have a first-hand point of contact with Jesus himself physically manifests. So theirs is the greatest judgment. And no generation before and no generation afterward has such a great judgment as those who had that first-hand eyewitness physical contact with Jesus. You know what? I don't think that Jesus was saying it's just them. I think Jesus is saying, and I'll show this uh, from the text in just a moment, I believe that Jesus is saying that every person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ is more responsible for what they do with that revelation than Sodom. There will be greater account and a greater reckoning for those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ than even for Sodom or all of the vile generations that preceded that of Jesus who never had that contact, that first-hand contact with Him. Let's read verses 13 and following, and you'll see it in verse 16, why I say that. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! These were Galilean towns in, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He says, "For the, If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, that's where Jesus set up his home base. Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now listen. The one who hears you, he says to his disciples, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. It will be more tolerable in judgment for the most vile people who never heard of Jesus than for the self-righteous who did. See in verse 16, Jesus' emphasis is not on seeing Him. It's on hearing Him. And it's not on hearing Him directly firsthand. It's on hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus through his messengers. That's his emphasis. All of those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ through his messengers have the greater accountability. And so it continues today. That's the case for us. 2,000 years removed from Jesus, we fall into the same category as Capernaum. Our community all around us, 
I, I have a hard time imagining that a single individual would be exempt from this. We have churches on every corner. Even in churches that tone down the, the gospel message, that smooth over the sharp edges of the truth, there is enough of the gospel present to leave all those who hear it accountable with a great accountability. If you do not believe the word of Christ and receive him in faith, it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day than for you. Listen, don't have any doubts that there are people within the conservative evangelical church of Washita Parish who still continue to refuse Jesus Christ, who still have not encountered Christ personally and not measured their hearts and their selves against the record, the, the, the law, the standard of God, who have not confessed their sin, not repented toward God and put faith in Jesus Christ, you can count on this. It was true in Christ's generation and that of the apostles, and it will be true until Jesus comes, that there are tares among the wheat. There are tares among the wheat. How you receive Jesus personally is the most important thing about you. How you receive Jesus Christ yourself is the most important thing about you. If your thoughts about Jesus are light thoughts, if your heart toward Jesus is standoffish, if you think that you would be able to live a happy life without him, then you have every right to fear for your soul. And I'm gonna, I'll say it all again in case somebody who needed to hear it wasn't paying attention. If your thoughts about Jesus are light, and if you think you can be happy without Him, if your heart is standoffish toward Him, you have every right given to you by the Bible to fear for your soul. And if, and if you think that I am right with God, and yet you have that feeling, those thoughts toward Christ, if that is your relationship with Him, then any assurance that you have that you are right with God is from the devil and not from the Bible. I think that people believe that hell is going to be serious. It's going to be agonizing. It's going to be tough. But most people, even in the church today, most people have no clue whatsoever is going to be in judgment. And that judgment is right and it is just. The cost, the consequence for rejecting Jesus Christ. Sometimes, I'll give you an example of people having no clue. Sometimes people imagine those who are in judgment very right now or in the future being repentant. Like, Those people who were dead to Jesus all through this life could be made alive to Him in judgment. Like they would say, now I realize what a treasure you are. Now I want you. I squandered all of that opportunity to want you then, but please take me now because I want you, Lord. I see your great love for me. I see the the mercy that you showed to me, and I want you now. Not so, not the case, not whatsoever. They remain dead in their sin. 
dead in their sin forever, with no desire for Christ, wanting the comforts of Christ, but not Jesus Himself. Think about it. If you reject the One who is the most beautiful, Jesus Christ, you will end up in judgment, turning into something that nobody would ever want to see. If you reject the friend of sinners, you will be left utterly alone to yourself forever. You will be enveloped by darkness forever and you will be darkness itself. What restrains evil in this life from those who do not believe? What restrains evil? Well, the common grace of God for one thing, law, government for another, and another thing is the fear of man. You know, what are other people going to think of me if I commit this crime? You know, uh, what are people going to think of me if I do whatever? You know, do this, this sin, this thing that everybody thinks is bad, scandalous, you know. But all of that is removed. They're not worried, okay, what's so-and-so going to think if I... Listen, all of the restraints on evil come off. Come off. The true nature is revealed. And those who would rather have sin than the reign of Jesus over them will become through and through that sin they love. Evil will not be slighted. It will not be restrained. It will be who they are. And the consequence will be right and it will be just. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, eternal God and eternal Spirit, took on human mortality to bear His soul to the wrath of God and bear His body to the wrath of men to pay the guilt of all of our sin so that we would have no guilt to pay for. And He calls in love to every sinner, come to Me. Turn away from being your boss, your self-rule. Repent. And trust in Me. I will save He will give life. It is the day of salvation. Today is the day. If you are resistant to Jesus, don't let the day go by without turning to Him. He has no delight in the perishing of the wicked, but many will. Verse 17 the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. They returned having experienced this otherworldly success, and they're full of the joy of it. At Christ's name and His word, the opposition fled. And Jesus said to them, verse 18 and 19, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus boasts 
in verse 18, and he makes a promise in verse 19, and his boast and his promise are both remarkable. Jesus sees what we can't see. And what he sees is that the coming of the kingdom and the word of the kingdom brings our great enemy down from his seat of power. Listen to uh, David Garland. He says, The disciples only see the battle picture from the limited perspective of their hand-to-hand combat in the trenches. They have charged into the line of demons and routed them in various skirmishes. Jesus, on the other hand, sees the whole war map. Satan has been knocked off his throne in heaven, which represents the the summit of his power, and is in full retreat. He is still kicking. He will unleash woes but he will assuredly be vanquished. His final defeat will be consummated at the end of time. This is awesome. What we are hearing in verses 17 and 18, this is awesome. Think about how Satan in the beginning brought humanity down. He baited Adam and Eve into rebellion against God with a word, with a promise. What did he promise? He promised them the seat of God's power. You can have God's throne. That was the temptation when he told them, you will be like God. Take the fruit, take what God is withholding from you, and you will be like him. You will have the seat of power. Now look at what Luke says, what Jesus says, unseats Satan from his seat of power. It's the sons and the daughters of Adam and Eve who are redeemed, proclaiming King Jesus. At the coming of Christ and the word of Christ, Satan loses his seat of power. He took us down by a word, and now he is vanquished by a word. Christ's coming and the word of him is the undoing of the devil. The gospel is Jesus Christ's unstoppable word and you are his unstoppable people. Satan cannot stop you. He can tempt you and deceive you and leave you very sore and wounded. He can knock you down. But by the power of the gospel, we rise. We are the redeemed. And we are given power in the gospel to tread over the enemy. I don't believe that Jesus was speaking literally when he spoke of serpents and scorpions. I think those words are metaphorical for Satan and his demons. And I believe that when he speaks of hurt, nothing shall hurt you. He is speaking of hurt ultimately. And the reason I say that is because he hasn't given us a force field. Because he has sent us out as lambs into the midst of wolves. Into a pack of wolves. And it's going to hurt. The mission is going to be costly. There's going to be sacrifice. There is going to be pain. But nothing ultimately will hurt us. He may kill our bodies. But Christ will raise our bodies. He may do great damage, but nothing can defeat us. Isn't it incredible 
that Jesus sends out the 72 against all the forces that Satan had sent himself into that region. And, you know, look at all the, the demonic possession and oppression in that day. I mean, no doubt it was, uh, I think, worse than our own. Because who would Satan hold back in reserve when Christ is on the scene? And yet, isn't it incredible that Jesus takes away from the disciples every other device that they could trust in, every human resource, and he sends them out? We need to learn the lesson of this. We need to learn that the gospel is Jesus' unstoppable word. I know sometimes it feels when you share the faith like the gospel has failed, that it hasn't do what it's, uh, you know, it hasn't lived up to its billing or whatever. But uh, a bunch of us read a book recently called The Gospel in which the author said the one thing that the gospel cannot do is nothing. The one thing it cannot do is nothing. It either raises to life or it brings into judgment. But the one thing the gospel cannot do is nothing. And that's what we must trust. The word of Christ. That's where the power is. You know, where are the elaborate schemes and strategies for this evangelistic mission? I mean, what about some music, right? Music is so moving. Just to synthesize our Lord, that's all we ask. Maybe with some voiceovers, we need that. Some interpretive dance. You don't do that. I haven't witnessed it. Actually, maybe I have when I think about it. It was unfortunate. Chalk drawings, if you're old school. Film? No. Just the word. None of the things that I mentioned are sin in themselves. But none of them have the power. The gospel, the good news, the word of truth, the word of Christ, that is the power of God unto salvation. That's where the power is. We don't need elaborate schemes. Keep it simple. Keep it gospel. Keep it centered on Jesus Christ. And Satan will be defeated. I brought up this hymn a couple weeks ago. Martin Luther wrote it during the Reformation. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can adore, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We were dead and we were enslaved. But by the gospel, Jesus Christ raised us up. Somebody made known to you the gospel. Church family, let us not be reservoirs constantly just filling up and never pouring out. I want you to know the Lord. It's the highest privilege to know God. I want you to fill up. But we're not to be reservoirs just containing, hoarding, only reveling. We need to be pouring out to those who are lost. Know God and make Him known. Because God, as He loved you in your ignorance, in the hardness of your heart, loves many others who are yet ignorant and blinded by the God of this age. Let us make known the Word.
Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I believe with all my heart that Christ will use mightily the person that believes in his power. Where is the person of faith in this body who will take to heart that Jesus uses weakness? Weakness. Where's the person? Where's the person of faith who is going to stop feeling sorry for themselves that they don't have it all together, that they don't have all the answers, who will believe in the power of the word of Jesus? He doesn't need our skills. He doesn't need our riches. What will he do with a person who simply believes and has faith and courage? What will he do with a church that stops feeling sorry for its size and takes courage? What will he do? There will be successes. And we have seen successes. We have scored by the gospel triumphs for the glory of Jesus. We have seen old prodigals on death's door come home. And we have seen by our prayers and the proclamation of Jesus, young prodigals come home. We have seen successes. But Jesus says, don't let your joy be in those successes. If they're great and many, don't let your joy be there. And on the other hand, the flip side, if they are few and far between and comparatively small to others, doesn't matter. Don't let your joy be there. Don't let your despair be there. Jesus says, rejoice, because your name is written in heaven. Write, rejoice that your name is written fixed in glory. Every name written in heaven, we are told in Revelation 13, is written before the foundation of the world. Every name is fixed. That person irrevocably belongs to God and they cannot be lost. That's our joy. It does not change. You see, if you lived the rest of your life spreading the gospel to every lost person that you came in contact with, if you experienced incredible successes until the end of your days, you were treading every day more and more over the power of the enemy. At the end of your days, your name would be no more written in heaven than it is right now. Justification doesn't increase or decrease. It is fixed. Your name is fixed there. It doesn't get highlighted. It doesn't appear in bold or italics or underlining or whatever. It's written. Written from before the foundation of the world by the sovereign grace of our God. That's the cause of our joy. You know that expression, everything is riding on whatever? Everything is riding on nothing in this world. Nothing in this world. Believer in Jesus Christ, God has you written down. Your place staked in glory. Your dwelling secure. He is not going to fail to bring you home. And when you arrive, when He brings you over the threshold, He is not going to regret seeing you there. He does not regret saving His people. You are His and He is yours. And that must be all of our joy. Until we arrive, let's do what Jesus did.
lay down our lives for sinners, enter into relationships of love with them, and tell them the truth of what they need to hear. That forgiveness is with God. Eternal life is through Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus is strong enough to save any soul. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be the going people, the the sending people, the praying people. We would be the urgent. We would be the single-minded, the focused. And in this mission that you have given to us, we would be together as co-workers. And as we go together on the road to glory, I pray, Father, that knowing you in the depths of knowing you, the truth would overflow in the words of the gospel. And I pray, Father, that you would give us great successes, that we would see more prodigals coming home, young and old, no matter their their status in this world, I pray that you would be pleased to add to this community of believers. I pray that we would be bold, Father. I know that not only do we feel guilty for squandering so much opportunity, we thank God, we thank you for your grace, but we also feel so weak and so incapable. I pray, Father, that we would not trust in our wits, in our speaking ability, in our the knowledge that we have built up, in some kind of strategy or device, program, whatever. I pray, Father, that we would rest in the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And bold, may we be bold then to speak. And know, Father, help us to know that no matter what response we receive, the gospel is working. It never does nothing. Oh Lord, thank you for calling us to this great work. Empower us for it with the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name and for his sake I pray, amen.